All right, let's stand and say for the last time in this class, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Right, have a seat. All right. Uh, this is kind of the, the wrap-up week. Uh, if you have questions about any of the 16 uh, parables, give or take a little bit, we've talked about uh, throughout. We can talk about whatever you want to you want to say. Uh, class next week there is no class other than Andy Andy Reese is doing the special class at 10 o'clock upstairs. Uh, I think it's called Magi. There is no class the week after that because it's New Year's. Right, it's technically New Year's Eve. Uh, the week, and then I think Fletcher or Steve, whoever, are the elders doing something the first four weeks of January? Yeah, first, uh, during January. I think there's three weeks when we do something and there's another week when we look at various ministries. Okay. Steve's not paying any attention. That's right. Yeah, because I because I know uh, the new classes start in the first week in February. Yes, I think that's correct. And uh, Jerry wanted me to give a little uh, advertisement for his class. He is doing uh, uh, history of the church fathers, basically looking at the first. Well, oh, is Leland? Yeah, Jerry and Leland are teaching it. Uh, first two centuries, I believe. I yes. Think, I think he's looking at some readings, writings of some of the early church fathers for the first two Right. Centuries. So basically the guys who are writing in what we would call the 100s and the 200s A.D. And so they're going to look at some of that. And, uh, and you can, it's a spiritual sequel to this class. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so yeah, we, we basically have approached this from a Jewish uh, standpoint and Jerry is going to take off as the church grows and really matures into a more universal church. And then also, that's also the time period where you see a lot of the early splits coming. The Gnostics are arising. You see the rise of the Coptics uh, in Egypt. Uh, you'll see a little bit of the early split between the Roman, what becomes the Roman Catholic and uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Leave something for them to say. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm just saying, it's advertising. He's got, he's got 17 weeks. There's, there's a lot to fill out there. All right. Does anyone have any questions? Uh, anything you want to talk about from the preceding 16 weeks? I got, I got introduced to this somewhat late. Okay. So I was wondering if there's going to be another time that this class or these set of uh, um, classes would be offered? Uh, it, it's possible. Uh, we may, the spring obviously is already set. Uh, it's possible we may redo, we only got to about a third maybe of the book. Uh, and then we're all, I've also played with the idea, he wrote a sequel, not a sequel to this, he wrote another book looking at Paul from Middle Eastern eyes, which is a study of 1 Corinthians. Uh, 
And so I, I've thrown around the idea of maybe doing that. that. That is a much, much harder book to do because these parables kind of stand on their own. The first Corinthians study is a stack study. Is like, you know, because you have to step through each week because each week builds on the one before. So I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to do that on a Sunday morning. Since this is Otter Creek and like people are in and out, in and out, in and out. Uh, if we can do that in a way that doesn't completely confuse you when you miss a week. I'm, I'm, it's, I mean, we, we, we record them and they are available through the website. And as long as Jeff's got your email, he sends those PowerPoints, which I think you just almost have. I, I, I send to Eric to send out this week. Did everyone get yeah. the PowerPoints? <laughs> yes, it's a really long, compre- <laughs> we have 142, according to this, 142 slides. And I'm actually missing some of Stephen's, yeah, so. Yeah, that's right. So we actually probably have like 180 slides net you for this. And I forgot to re- hit the record button one time, which I which I currently have on, so we're good. I was like, I know we explained everything that week. I don't know. So the recordings will stay on. They stay on for because uh, I know my class, Rebecca's and I's class from about poverty alleviation from two and a half years ago is still on the website. So uh, they, they stay on for a while. Uh, I shall check. Yeah. And so, yeah. How do you know that? You go back and listen to us? <laughs> yeah. No, I actually was, I went back to look for something, what someone else's class, I noticed that our class was up. I said, oh, that's pretty good. I didn't realize it stayed up that long. Careful what you say. That's right. Be very careful what you say. You're recording everything. Big Brother is listening. And uh, it's a good thing, uh, you know, some a lot of the a lot of the written magazines have gone away because otherwise we'd be written up in some of them I'm sure for things we have said or not said. But I would recommend the book as well, Jesus from Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth Bailey. That's I, for my weeks particularly. I've stayed very close to what he said. I think y'all too have much more outside knowledge, so they might have supplemented in ways. But I can say for my weeks, I would recommend going back and looking at the book. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really, really good book, and it, it's, it's, it's written in pieces so that it's easily readable. Well, I, I, let me repeat that, Re- refrain on that. It's not easily readable. There are parts of it that are very easily readable. When he gets into some of the uh, criti- uh, scriptural criticism on translations, it can get a little deep. But uh, as one of my friends who introduced me to this book, he just said, well, I just skipped that part. <laughs> he goes. He goes. I, I read. I read his. I read his introduction. Then I goes. Then I read his conclusion, and then I go to the parts where he discusses the parables. Uh, but he'll get. He'll sometimes we'll get into uh, some uh, technical criticisms that are r- really deep. Yes, and you know because you get into because a lot. I was. I was talking. Uh, Earlier, you know, like our Bible, when you look, when you trace how our Bible has been translated, you know, it, like we talked about, Jesus is speaking Aramaic, Hebrew, maybe a little Greek, depends where he's at. It is then translated into, if it's Mark, very simple Greek. If it's Matthew, he wrote it down in Aramaic, which was then translated by someone else to Greek, not Mark. Yeah, Matthew, I said that right, didn't I? Yes. Luke writes in very high-level Greek. 
much more complex. And so, and, and so you see all the books, and Paul is a very, very literate writer. And so his books tend to be very complex Greek. And then you have guys like Peter, who was a fisherman, whose books tend not to be complex. And so you, you and then, you know, the way the Bible has gotten to us, you know, you have to trans, you've got the Coptics in Egypt who are grabbing all the Bibles they can and taking them to their monastery and copying them. You know, and so uh, Codex uh, Sinaiticus is one of the oldest translations we have, which is in the British Museum. And I want to say seven, eight hundred. Uh, and then you have, uh, in Rome, you have, the, as, the, as the church becomes the official power of the Roman state, everything's translated to Latin. And at the same time, you've got the Syriacs and the Armenians, as the Eastern Orthodox Church arises, they're translated into, the, into their languages. And so you, and, and they're all trying to translate it culturally the best they can. And so our, our and then, you know, we're handicapped because every one of us thinks King James Version. Regardless of how many versions you read now, we all grew up, the, how many of you grew up in a church that King James was the official church, right? The only, the, this, is the, this is the language Jesus spoke. He spoke King James English. Uh, I, have, I remember people saying that from the pulpit. This is the Bible Jesus used. King, I'm, I'm a, said, right. I, I have heard that from the pulpit. I said, you know, even, even when I had a young age, I figured out, wait a minute. I don't think that's, that's not, I don't think that's true. Or in a nutshell, the Bible was written for us, but right not to, to us, us. Yeah. and then you know, and part of it is understanding. You know, Matthew is written by a Jew to Jews to explain why Jesus is the Messiah to a Jew. Mark and Luke are written by Greeks to Greeks, explaining why Jesus came to save the world. And that they explain he's the Messiah, but that's not a Greek. That's not a Greek thought. It's a very Jewish thought. So they have to explain when you read them. You, they have to explain to the Greek readers what is the Messiah. You know, Matthew just says Jesus is the Messiah, and everyone knew what he's talking about. In Mark and Luke, you see him constantly explaining to them, "This is what the Messiah is. This is what the Messiah does." And then you have John come along 20-some years later after everyone else and kind of wraps everything else up. And you also know, so we did not use a lot of John necessarily this time because uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, kind of tell the story in a story arc, whereas John kind of, he's like, uh, he's like the ESPN commentator you know, after the game. He's kind of going, oh, you guys read this. Uh, let me tell you a little more about this. Let me tell you a little more about this. He's not necessarily this good story arc of Jesus born, Jesus goes all the way through, Jesus gets crucified. He takes bits and pieces and really amplifies them. But if you try to, if you try to match his story to their story, it can be challenging. But the, all the stories are true. It's just, and, and some people will, 
people will talk about that of, you know, culture, this gets down to culture of, you know, who are you writing it to? What question are you trying to answer? You know, as uh, if you in first service, you know, he talks a little about uh, Luke and, you know, the great, you know, why the story of who Luke is trying to tell about, you know, there are, you know, we talk about all the time in parables. Every one of the parables has a righteous person and an unrighteous person. The entire book of Luke is structured in that way. There are righteous people, and then there are the unrighteous people. Herod, all the Herods, you know, pick a Herod, they're all unrighteous. Uh, Augustus, uh, Pontius Pilate, you know, and he just starts, li you know, listing them all in, in the intro to Luke. And so, but part of, a lot of that is just the, uh, the culture in which the books are written. And it's a pretty, the, most, of the, in, most of the Bible's just very Jewish. Yes. Paul's a devoted Jew. It says, it says, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He doesn't say, I was a Pharisee. No, he, yeah. I am a Pharisee. And he's saying that to the Christian churches that he's writing to when he says that line. So I, I guess, too, I'd be interested, I mean, just to toss it out, too, if people have thoughts on did did anything about kind of <coughs> the book and the teachings we did bring out some of the Jewish ways of thinking that changed some of how you thought about things? Well, I my big takeaway is just that um, what you kept repeating about how Jewish people think in, in pictures and that all of these stories, I mean, I just thought, oh, gosh, Jesus was such an amazing, he invented these stories, and just almost every one of them was like, they knew the story. The story was there, it had been there forever, and he just twists the ending just a little bit, because they, they've got it, like, pictured in their mind how it's going to go, and when he, but it, it's, so it's, a, it's the same story, and that they they can visualize the story, they know where the story's going, and then he just, just the fact that they were so visual, that, that. And the way I've heard it said is 80% of the Bible is in story form, and 20% of it is a text message to people in the story. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right, they think in stories, all rabbis, Told parables. There were thousands of parables, hundreds of parables floating around. And so a lot of it wasn't, is he going to tell a story? It's, what story is he going to tell here? And how, what story is he going to use to explain this story that we know? <laughs> and like rabbis, or even today, if you go into some Hebrew schools, and this is something that I, blows my mind and is a real challenge to me, they they argue about the scripture to understand what it's saying to us. And it's always scripture opinion, scripture opinion. It's never, this is what I think or what I feel. And maybe I'll throw in a verse to support it, which I think is our way of thinking. Maybe. That's like the optimistic, I think, for our church culture is I have this conviction or feeling or thought. And if you're good you might know a verse that applies. Whereas mm -hmm. Jews go, God's word first, then opinion. God's word first, then opinion. Back and forth, back and forth. And a lot of the opinions uh, are stories. And so it's like a little parable or illustration to explain a verse. And then another verse, explain it with a parable. 
This verse, well, it's like a man with two sons. This verse, it's like a king and his servants. This verse, you know. So it's for Jews, and this is what I so badly wish for, for myself and was more prominent in just our church today and as a whole, is for Jews, the Bible is reality. It's not something that informs reality. The word of God, it's everything. And again, to become a rabbi, the goal is to become the word made flesh. You want to become the text. You can't become the text if you're not deeply and constantly involved in it. I think I'm going to babble for a couple of minutes. Um, first thing that comes to mind is Nobody's added anything to what we call the New Testament or the Bible in 2,000 years. That it seems as if the parables are a classic. I'm amazed that all we do, generally speaking, is we teach words instead of create stories today. Or I don't really have any recall in church history where teaching is done by way of storytelling in parables. Why don't we try, or has anybody made a, about parables? And Is it just that we think it's harder than it is so nobody really ventures into it? Or do we have to be in a culture where all you do is talk story before you ever think of words? And then again, it's like, well then why hasn't the Orient come up with parables that I pertain to that? We were in a class, was it last semester? Darlene Colson, who does Made, Made in the, the Streets. Um, she had this big, I'm a visual, so she had the big storybook like in the day, and it was the Good Samaritan, but they had written it, um, it was the Good Psalm, right? So what country are they in? So they're, they're in Ken Kenya, and, and it was the Somalis. The Somalis, like, like the Jews hate the, uh, the yeah, half Samaritans. Like, oh my gosh, is they have written, the, the kids have rewritten basically the Good Samaritan to be the Good Psalm, the Good Somali, because they hate them so much. And, that, and it was fascinating to me how she had the big storybook, and for their culture, um, they just retold the parable. Right. But you know, I mean, I get that. But what I'm saying is, is we don't do it in America. We don't do it in Western civilization. I don't even know if it crosses our minds to do it any other way than, well, first of all, you have to be an academic. And if you don't have a PhD, I'm not interested in anything you have to say because you couldn't possibly know the heart of God. And I'm just surprised that there, <clears throat> I mean, I, I don't know history, but uh, it's like, am I correct? We just don't teach parables except in, well, except every Sunday morning when we talk about them. Well, I mean, there, there are times through history. You go to Europe, you look at every one of the cathedrals. Every window in that cathedral is a parable. There is a story in each window that is telling some story of the Bible. You know, and part of it was because people were illiterate, so they did not, A, they didn't speak Latin, uh, and they, they, they taught in Latin, so the people in the church had no idea what the guy was saying, but you could look at the, the windows and catch the story. I mean, we, we do that to some extent. I mean, not, I, we tend to do motion pictures, uh, 
I mean, if, if you think of uh, Mel Gibson's uh, picture, motion picture, and then, uh, I mean, there's been a couple others. I mean, by and large, those don't get funded very well. But, you know, that if you look at that motion picture, you go, wow, that's a very strong visual message of essentially what the Gospels are, or the, or the last part of the Gospels are saying. And I think we just, and Becca talked about this, I mean, we're just more concept-driven. We're not, you know, we say concepts. God is good, you know, and God is great, and he is all-powerful. And that's true, but, you know, it's just nat it's just very natural from a fundamental place, I think, for Jews. And many Eastern, the Eastern way of thinking to say, God is shade on a hot day, you know. Or, I mean, this is also, I mean, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. So the bread of the world was born in a bakery. You know, this is how, and you think like, well, it's kind of corny that God would, you know, use that word play to come into the world. But it's not. That's how Jews think. And again, it's a Jewish book. So, yes. Well, I was going to say, maybe the problem is we've always heard from men. We tend to think that way. In ladies' class, not only do I talk from the parables of my own life, we have women come up in front of each class and tell a bit of wisdom from their own lives. And they tell parables from their own lives that teach the same messages that we've been studying in the, whatever book we're reading. But I do think the speaker needs to be vulnerable and be able to say, here it is. This is what we're talking about. This is what happened with my son. This is what happened with my husband. This is what is, and, and being vulnerable about that. It's not always easy for a preacher types. I'm not going to say you guys. Preacher types are a little, knowing they're being taped, knowing they're being watched, knowing they may be out for another job. You know, they don't tend to be that direct. Josh is pretty open. Uh, but Mostly, preacher types have thought of themselves as having to convey information. Yep. And uh, I don't even see that because the women in my ladies' class know the Bible every bit as well as I do. But I may have a twist on something because it happened to me in my family. I know what they're talking about. I know what Jesus is talking about here because that happened to us. Um, and. So we might we might need to sprinkle a few. <laughs> I have a stack of metaphors from my family. Um, they're they're just all around you in your life if you look for them. If you if you think in metaphors, they're everywhere. Uh, they didn't have to go far to pick up a story about a man on a horse going somewhere. Do you mind if I? Oh, jump in there. Well, to get back to your original point, which I think is why I have there. Why haven't there been, why aren't there more common parables that are younger than 2,000 years old that have become part of our church vernacular? Um, I can't give you an answer as to why uh, there hasn't, haven't become ones that have become common amongst churches, but I would say that I think Josh does speak in stories a lot more often than other um, preachers that I've heard. Like, Green Gertrude, how many of us have heard him talk about Green Gertrude from the stand? The children's stories he tells his children, and he'll often bring them up. Um, sometimes I laugh that uh, 
Josh will give three stories and then get into like the actual topic, what he's talking about. If you listen, it's very often three. <laughs> There's a sports one, one with his children. <laughs> uh, a third one that has to do with pop culture, and then he'll begin to listen for it. Well, that's good, because three is scriptural. So you, just, you always do three. Uh, but I think um, it's a little bit different than parables in that parables, um, we think of stories as ways to illustrate a point, and to the Jewish people, parables were the point. Like there was no, and that's the moral of the story. That's mm -hmm. how we think of it in Western eyes. But the parable was the point. It's 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 a weird, it's a conceptual difference um, that's kind of hard to explain out loud. It's confrontational. Yeah. And parables are unique. They're a unique form of teaching. They're different than. Um, a lot of children's stories, like par like Jewish parables, have a very unique way of because it's real. It's not real stories, but it's people. Mm -hmm. They don't make up animals. Right, right. right? I mean, because because we're we're basically Greek descendants. You know, Aesop's fables. You know, if you think about that's how we think. You know, the the ant and the grasshopper. You know, you go through that whole story and you get to the end, and Aesop tells you what it means. Uh, the moral of the story is. You know, be the ant, not the grasshopper. Uh, and well, part two of what I was going to say is I think um, the closest thing to parables we have in our culture is going to be movies, like mm -hmm. a rom-com. We all know what a romantic comedy is, right? We all know that there are those points that you hit, and then at the end, the man and woman will get together, and it'll be true love. And like, what does that tell us about our society? Like. We, we get, without ever having to see that movie, you can see a trailer and be like, I know what that movie is. Like, that's sort of what parables are in the sense that, like, the, and you can disagree with me on this point, it, but, like, for, a, a mod, for our society, I think movies are the closest thing we have to, like, these are the story, the story itself is saying something about I think that's when Jesus is genius because he took what we know. We know we know how it's all, you know, the details may be different, but we know how the ending is going to be. And he flipped it. And, mm -hmm. and that's what I just Which is, I mean, so today when you think of the great movies, what do all the great movies do? They, they set you up one direction and they flip to the ending. And you go, oh, wait, I didn't expect that. Frozen. Yeah, Frozen, right. <laughs> Frozen just has good songs. Steve, Steve, you're up. Yeah. Well, I don't uh, think this is all far-fetched. I'm building on what Sandy said and what you guys said. You know, the parables in their simplest forms were metaphors, illustrating and points and everything else. And when rare times when I'm at my most reflective or spiritual, I can see metaphors in everything. For example, two examples. Uh, went out through the redwood forest and as you walk through there and see the magnificence all of a sudden God's creation is everything you see is a metaphor the root system of the redwoods the way they raise up the way they never die and they build so on and on and on a couple of months ago uh, I had the privilege of making the Camino uh, pilgrimage to Santiago in Spain and so for centuries and centuries, uh, uh, Catholics uh, uh, have taken these various pilgrimages to Santiago. 
And I found out the practice, if you lift God, and lift this day up to God, illustrate all these lessons that I could learn on this 100-mile hike to, to Santiago. And I joined with hundreds of other pilgrims from everywhere in the world, men and women and everything else. And everything that we did, that the walk, the landscape, the heartedness of the people, the spirit became part of a metaphor for our Christian walk. So I think, I think if we can really get in tune with the spirit of God, everything, every person, every story becomes a metaphor for an illustration. Also, great literature provides that kind of metaphor. You read Camus' The Plague, and it's about rats killing people through disease. You think, then it dawns on you, no, that's not what's, no, and this could happen again. And he's talking about Nazi Germany. And uh, when you get to the end, the doctor is a little afraid that a plague like that could actually come back if you weren't watching. It, <coughs> that is, that is like, it's longer than a parable, but that's what it is. Tolstoy's how much land does a man need? And the guy says to the fellow, you can have all the land you can walk around in a single day. And by the time the guy has walked and stretched it bigger and made it bigger and made it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, he has a heart attack and dies, <coughs> and they bury him in six, and that was all that. <coughs> they bury him in that place. That is, that is a parable by Tolstoy. They, they're, they're around. They're not just in movies, and they're not just... Um, Dr. Seuss is too. That's just There you go. My favorite lyric. I thought I was going to end with this. Uh, to love another person, see the face of God. Na na name the work. Of the work. Les Mis, right. I mean, the entire Les Mis musical is a ginormous parable about the the you know the conflict between legalism and grace uh, about uh, love and hate. I mean, there, you can pick all sorts of stuff out of that. Yeah, and all, like like Sam says, all the great literature. You you see the reflections of God in great literature, uh, and in, in a lot of ways, you know what we're looking at in the Gospels does it. The these parables are like I said, it's. Uh, when you read the Jewish writings, they're, they're, they're trying to you know, grasp these concepts and put them in ways that are easily rememberable. Uh, you know, the 613 commandments in the Old Testament are tough. And that's what you know, the, the, a lot of the rabbis tried to do is create stories so you could remember the 613 commandments that you weren't supposed to break, especially if you're a Pharisee. And their invitation into they invite you into the story. They pull your heart in, and they want to go for your heart before your head. And a lot of Greek thinking is if you can understand Stand it, it, then maybe you'll get convicted. But the Jewish way Wait, is the other way around. It's the other way. Grab your heart and then understand. Which I mean, if you know, if you look historically at our worship, we tend to be very cerebral worshipers. 
Jews will bring in a Bible to the synagogue and everybody will dance because it's so good that God has spoken. And they'll dance. I mean, it's, they're exci that excited about it. Right? I know. We were laughing because we were like, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, good information. That's right. We were laughing because we were in, we were in Africa, and uh, when they were singing, the adults we've all learned that you got you know you got to be worshipful, and the kids were dancing in the aisle. Uh, remember that little like five year old? He was he was going, and you're going like yeah. I mean that's yeah. <laughs> but you know but that's it's it's that thing of you you know there, there are sometimes you're. Your brain shuts down your heart. Yeah. Yeah. I think even God tells stories. You know, you've got King David who was a shepherd who became king. And then you look at Jesus' story. Jesus' birth is, is a story. You know, where he was born is a big thing. You know, he was born in a town of shepherds who became king. I mean, God, I think, uses a lot of those throughout his story as a way or with his Even, uh, I was looking at this yesterday, I thought this was amazing, because in Genesis 1, the state of chaos at the very beginning, you remember this? And we kind of, and I had thought of this, I might have even said it in class, that, um, you know, there's, it's chaos, the word is like tohu vavohu, or something. And it's the state of chaos. And I thought, you know, nothing makes sense, it's water and dark matter floating in different places. But the picture is actually... The, the, words, the word picture is a desert. And there's just nothing, you know. And this is what Israel had to walk around in for 40 years. And the way the Gospels start, which refers to Isaiah 40, uh, Behold the voice of one crying, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. You remember that? Mm -hmm. And are we, I think we have the colon in the wrong place. Um, we, use, we usually say, uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, colon, prepare the way of the Lord. I think is how some Bibles say it. It should be the other way. The voice of one crying, colon, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. God's way is made in the wilderness, which changes things and aligns with Genesis 1. God works in the wilderness through his word to bring creation. God works in the wilderness through Israel to bless the whole world. John speaks in the wilderness. That's where he prepares the way. And so it's pretty awesome. And then the other picture from Genesis, early in Genesis 1, is the spirit hovers over the waters. The explanation of that is in Deuteronomy 32. Uh, because the word picture is the way a bird, the way an eagle, hovers over the nest and protects the eggs in the nest. That's, that's what the spirit hovering over the chaos is like. That's what God is doing, leading the people with the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud through the wilderness. He's protecting them. Anyway, so it's, I mean, everything. Now, it, you have, it takes effort, I think, to learn the pictures, and, but it's great. I mean, that, for me, it's like just so exciting to learn a new picture like that in the scripture that you think that's good, but move on. But no, it's these pictures. I think are they like you said they help mm -hmm. us stick a little bit more. Can I ask? Is there 
I mean, I guess we can each answer that. To my, my, the thing I really enjoyed the most, well, that's probably the most memorable to me, is the one I taught last week. The very last parable Jesus teaches before he walks in the city, which is the, uh, the king and the, and the minas. And the fact that the translation should be because I am coming back. Because that is such a... And not I'm coming back, I am coming back because I am coming back as king. That this whole parable is be a strong example. You know, because I, you know, I was raised in the, you know, the works-oriented Church of Christ. And so therefore these parables go into that because, you know, you're only given so many parables, you know, so many talents. You need to work hard until Jesus, until you, actually not until Jesus comes. It was always until you died because, you know, Jesus may not you're, you're, you're going to be dead before he comes back. That was the underlying teaching. Uh, but, you know, and that's, and that, but you also notice every time, did, did, were you, you were never the one talent person, but you're also never the ten talent person, right? The preacher is always like the, 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 middle, the middle guy. That's a, you know, everyone thought they were the ten talent person. No one thought they were the one talent. But, you know, it's the fact that, no, that whole, that whole parables are not about profiteering. It's about being a strong uh, representative of Jesus to the people because he is coming back as king. Not, I'm just, you know, because until kind of gives you that, you know, until I run out of time, I get tired, or until, or until, until. It's like, no, you do it because he's king. I'm representative of the king, and I will be representative of the king. I think that was, of all the ones I've studied this time, I think it was the one that probably most affects me. For me, it was um, the woman at the well. I knew and have been taught that Jesus um, inverted a lot of uh, social norms. Um, and people talk about, you know, eating with the tax collectors and prostitutes. But just the woman at the well, I never saw the social norms that he inverted there. Like the fact that he was talking to her in the first place. She was married. They were alone, just the two of them. They used the same cup. Like that was um, also, I mean, she he asked her to get water for it. Like all of these things that we wouldn't um, in our culture naturally understand. Like those were him breaking these taboos. Um, and he, I mean, like he's not going to treat women like secondhand citizens. And don't the apostles? They don't really say at the end of that what she did in here or what she wants. Right. It says like it's it's a, they were thinking. Yes. <laughs> she wants or what's she doing? Yeah. Um, which suggests all of the above that they were thinking about. Um, for me, I think. Well, learning learning that the Good Samaritan story, it's not, he wasn't even making up what the Samaritan did, that that came from Second Chronicles 28, what the Samaritans did. He, again, like he is, Jesus literally, it's all coming from the scripture. Everything is so motivated from obscure texts like Second Chronicles 28. And then I, I, last week's was new to me, and it was, it was helpful to make the connection between 
the parable and Zacchaeus right before it. Because mm -hmm. he's in Jericho. Some of the context there is the Sadducees were really rich and had really nice places to live in Jericho. Right. And um, that's where Zacchaeus is. And again, Zacchaeus, the name Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, means righteousness or honest. So it's a good person. Remember, and he says, if I've done anything wrong, I'll pay back four times. And if you look again, that's a signal that he knows the Torah. Exodus 22.1 says, if you steal and kill a sheep from someone else, you have to give them back four sheep. So Zacchaeus is saying, I know the scripture, I'm honest, and if I've done anything wrong, I'll follow the Torah. And then that parable, the follow-up mm -hmm. about Jesus is saying Zacchaeus is managing his stuff well um, and is trying to follow God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might. I, you know, it was really cool to help bring those together. So that was new to me. And, and then I, so I love the, little, the historical ironies. All right, Jericho. You know, walk around the walls of Jericho. What's the prophecy? Who should never, ever, ever, ever live in Jericho? Any Jew, right? Where do the Sadducees have their best houses? Jericho. I mean, it's the one city that God says, I'm, you're not doing anything. You're walking around it. You're blowing the horns. I'm tearing the walls down. Nobody should ever live in this city again. And when you come to the time of Jesus, who lives there? All the rich and powerful. Because Jerusalem's kind of crowded. Jericho's down on the river. It's nice. Uh, and so uh, you see the Sadducees, they all have these big houses in Jericho. And you realize, wait a minute, you're people of the word. They know that scripture, but it doesn't matter. It's a really nice place. And, you know, it, it's, it's those ironies like that that you see in the scripture of, wait a minute, of all the people who should know this, you guys are the priest. And where are you living? You're living in Jericho. Uh, all these classes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Fred. I'm kind of unique, I guess, in this class because I'm actually from the Middle East. So uh, let me also, from our perspective, what the importance and practicality, and I make this shorter as yeah. I know people have things to do. Um, parables are about knowledge transfer and interpretation. And talking people into thinking. So the, think of it, or from there, we think of it as that proverbial ink spot. You keep that same ink spot and you show it to people over and over and over, and different people have different interpretation of it. And then the discussion takes place. So if you take the parable of uh, X, Y, or Z, and show it to a kid or a teenager, they have a different interpretation of it than this class or some <laughs> my mother. Or, but the parable remains the same, which is what is being transferred. But majority of the value is forcing people to think and reinterpret it and learn more and more and more. So the learning is not repeated, but it's rhymed. So the principles behind Joseph Campbell's book, now it's a Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Now they can be argued, but um, <laughs> since we're in a Star Wars season. But um, it's a fascinating thing uh, to have those parables because even family to family, they talk about it. 
and uh, they had a different interpretation of it. And they said, well, that's your uncle. That's the Pharisee, or that's mm -hmm. the Sadducee, or that's the Good Samaritan, he's your cousin, but not the other cousin who's got a dentistry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, depending on the scope. But it's a, it's a fascinating thing. It's a gift that keeps giving. And so it's very popular in that culture. And thank you very much for putting the focus on it. All right. Thank you all. I think sure. you just brought so many things. Every class, I only missed right. one, but I walked away every class amazed and learned something. And I just thank you for all your study. All right. You did a good job. Let's go forth and be Christians. <laughs> <laughs>